Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. We've made it to the end of the week, and what a busy week it was. Time to take a step back from the headlines and dig a little deeper on the Weekly News Recap. There are a lot of big stories to discuss. At the top of that list, Brandon Johnson is the new mayor of Chicago. I called Brandon Johnson and told him that I absolutely expect him to be the next mayor of Chicago. Chicago chose one of CTU's own. The election of Brandon Johnson, a former Chicago public schools teacher, is the culmination of a movement to elect people who will champion the union's cause. Just a few months ago, no one really knew who Brandon Johnson was. He talked about polling at 2.3%. And to go from that to be the mayor of one of the largest cities in the country is no small task. My name is Brandon Johnson, and I can't wait to be sworn in as the next mayor of the greatest city in the world. And neighboring Indiana made headlines this week with a trans health care ban. A lot more people outside the state of Wisconsin are learning the name Janet Protosewitz. Indiana's governor could soon sign a bill banning all gender-affirming care for minors. Angela Clay, her second time running for office in the 46th Ward, has won. Alder woman Nicole Lee, she was elected by the people of the 11th Ward. Here in the 36th Ward, Gilbert Viegas, the incumbent, eking out a victory there over Lori Torres-Witt. Our panel this week helping us break down those stories and more includes Mick Dumkey, who's now an investigative editor and reporter for Block Club Chicago. Alden Laurie is the data projects editor for WBEZ. And joining us for the first time is Ben Kessling, Chicago-based reporter for the Wall Street Journal. All right, let's get into it. Chicago has a new mayor, Cook County Commissioner, union organizer, and former teacher Brandon Johnson. Now that we've had a few days to reflect, I want to get your main takeaways from this election. Alden, let's hear from you first. Some of the big things for me was just the fact that uh, apparently a, a ground game still matters. Um, uh, uh, Johnson uh, certainly seemed to take advantage of that. Um, also, uh, I was somewhat, uh, I won't say surprised, but I think also the fact that um, uh, the black vote in particular and not uh, in the juggernaut fashion that we saw maybe 40 years ago with Harold Washington's uh, election, but that uh, even a blip uh, from from that sector of the electorate can make a difference in Chicago. That was one of my key takeaways from uh, from the results. Mick? I agree with everything Alden said, and I'll just add um, also that it, it really feels like we're turning the page here from old-school Chicago politics, at least in some parts, at least maybe on the surface. Um, you know, I won't say the machine is dead. I think that's probably premature, but... Uh, at least a majority of voters came out and said they did not want to go back to someone from the daily era um, to be their next mayor. They decided they wanted someone who was proposing a new way of looking at some of our problems, most notably crime. And um, as Alden mentioned, uh, you know, ground game matters, but this is a different ground game. This is not a uh, you know patronage government patronage workers ground game where people had to go out and do the door knocking um, in return for holding on to their jobs. 
Um, this appeared to be a very impassioned group of supporters for Brandon Johnson who are out there trying to get the vote out. Ben, you covered this race for a national audience. How did the mayoral race resonate with the rest of the country? Well, I mean, I think the looking at the the issues that were at work in Chicago that also are played to a national audience is very important. So there's certain trends that a lot of other races are seeing. The crime the crime issue is is not only not only a big issue in Chicago, it's big across the country. And I think that there was also um part of the part of the Johnson campaign that doesn't didn't really get a lot of focus um, on coverage, but a lot of the flyers that were going out the uh, that were that were knocking Vallis were about the abortion issue, and abortion has become this uh, this very hot button issue uh, across so many campaigns across so many um, so many districts so many states, and I think that probably played a role. Um, a, I mean, crime was crime talking to voters on the street. Crime was the biggest thing. That's how to deal with it and the philosophies behind what to do about crime because there's, you know, the defund police aspect of it and then there's the back the blue aspect of it. And um, to find the way that those candidates tried to thread that needle to say, hey, I've got the best approach to dealing with crime. But then there were also these these subcurrents going, which is the abortion issue, things like uh, the machine getting people out. And, you know, as as Mick said, the um the idea of people getting out canvassing for Brandon Johnson, it was, it was, it was always a um, an underdog sort of uh, ground game. And when you've got people running your ground game and they feel like they're fighting for an underdog, they're going to fight harder a lot of times. I think that that was an important aspect of it as well. Ben, I think what you are getting into with the abortion issue is how Brandon Johnson was characterizing Vallis as a Republican. So abortion is one issue in that. It's backing the the police in a way that says just more officers is is the way to go um and then also some of the the school issues so to me i see that all wrapped in as oh he's not he's not really a democrat this is a republican and i've got the receipts to to pull all the things that he has said yeah i i think that's right um but the flyers if you're in chicago of course anybody who's in chicago filled up their you know filled up the recycling bin with the flyers by the time election day came from both sides. But the the way that that sort of this guy, the way that Johnson was portraying Vallis as a sort of closeted Republican, um, when those flyers, it put first and foremost on the front side, the abortion stuff. And I think that that really resonates with, I mean, it resonated with voters here, it resonated with voters in Wisconsin with some of the races, that, with the races that were happening up there. Uh, but yes, you're right. It all wraps into that entire package to say, Hey, this this person is not as progressive as uh, as 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 I am, and you know the the city council is changing, uh, becoming more progressive, and um, Brandon Johnson sort of made sure that he made sure he took advantage of that wave that was that was flowing through the, through the city. I have been pretty curious about flyers as someone who lives in a black neighborhood. The things that I was getting on my door, like Paul Ballas, come to S two S two Grill on Stony Island, free drinks, free food. Um, or him using uh, Lori Lightfoot to say, hey, he's too he's too radical. Uh, what kind of Nick, Mick, you live on the north side. What were your flyers saying? Well, I live on the far north side in uh, a ward that went for Brandon Johnson in both rounds of this election. And interestingly, we didn't get very much literature from Brandon Johnson's campaign. Our mailbox was uh, filled with Paul Vallis flyers. So my guess was that Vallis was trying to chip away 
at places where uh, Brandon, you know, seemed to have support, and he was trying to make him work on that turf. Um, but obviously, it didn't. It didn't. It didn't work for uh, for Vallis. The whole far uh, northeast part of the city, um, from Lakeview up through Rogers Park, went for Johnson, and uh, the whole you know what I sort of think of as the hipster Milwaukee Avenue corridor uh, went for Johnson, and some of those places did the first time too. But he grew his. Uh, you know, he he won by bigger margins in places he'd won before, and then he expanded the map up there. So his base was Rogers Park, the the north side, and then he expanded. That was his base in the primary, and then he expanded. Alden, can you talk about how this relatively unknown candidate six months ago was able to emerge victorious? Uh, three letters, uh, CTU. Uh, pretty much the the funding and backing that he got from the Chicago Teachers Union, but also uh, from, from other teachers unions, the state uh, and the American Federation of Teachers, uh, really helped him get out, get out on TV, get out on radio. Uh, I mean, literally, he was known to a very, very small percentage of Chicagoans who, you know, followed a, the Cook County Board, uh, no kind of the political family of Tony Preckwinkle. Uh, he, part of his base in the original election was also in kind of that, uh, kind of Hyde Park area that she had once represented. Um, he won those precincts down there. Uh, in Did February. he win? The, he won those in February yeah. too. Yeah, it was a, not a, a, a huge number, but but he, but but that was those were his three main points: in far north side, the near northwest side, along Milwaukee Avenue, and then um, some of that area around uh, around Hyde Park there. Um, but um, but it was that it was that money uh, because he really wasn't getting it anywhere else. It helped him kind of stay competitive in terms of the ways in which he was able to get exposure along with Vallis. And it's, I mean, CTU brings money, but they also bring uh, a heck of a ground game, right? And a heck of a uh, of experience in messaging, even with the rank and file members of CTU, because of all the all the work that they've been doing over time. Uh, either, whether it's uh, negotiating contracts or striking, that messaging has been has been sort of hammered into the CTU rank and file, and they know how to talk about how to talk about the candidate that CTU wants to talk about and get that message out there. Yeah, yeah. I, can, I, just quickly quick, uh, consider also that even in February, even though he didn't win on the south and west sides, he pulled third in most of those precincts behind uh, behind Lightfoot and behind Wilson, and so when they were out of the race, he immediately kind of became the person, but. He doesn't do that unless people at least have some sense of who he is and what he thinks and cares about. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to add that I find it very interesting that um, he and his supporters didn't really talk about it as a campaign. They always talk about it as part of a movement. And so these, again, were very motivated uh, people who were working for and advocating for Johnson. And he just kept growing and growing that that base of support. And that movement aspect of it, right? Like um, when the in the first round of voting uh, that whittled down everybody to Johnson and Vallis, I, I was at the, the Johnson, the Johnson watch party for that. And uh, it really hammered home the aspect of the movement part of it and the, the religious aspect of it, right? Like this is, it's when you can mobilize pastors and uh, uncles and aunties to get out there and talk about, uh, talk about a candidate and to do so with the impetus of, of, of the church backing it, or this is a religious candidate and have the people out there canvassing with the idea that the, that the church is behind you. That's, that's a powerful thing as well. Ben Johnson's election also seems to be a clear victory for the progressive wing of Chicago's Democratic Party. What could this mean for Democrats on a national level? Well, 
there, Democrats across the country have sort of been on the move uh, in in recent in recent months. And I mean, look up to Michigan, uh, Michigan right now. The they have the what's called the trifecta, where the the legis both houses, the legislature and the governor's seat, is held by a Democrat, so they're able to push through uh, push through initiatives. You just had the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin that was uh, that was taken by a, a liberal candidate, and there is there's an aspect of of an of of a um, of the idea that they the democratic movement is is somehow advancing right now, and the progressive movement is advancing, and despite uh, the extensive media coverage of things like uh, what's happening with the uh, the former president and and whatnot, there is this aspect of I mean, look at Brandon Johnson's ground game and how he was able to to sweep into this uh, into this seat. Look at the way in which the the city council is changing its composition. There's something happening with people um, with people pushing back and and moving towards this progressive uh, um, this this new progressive mindset. Let's go to another clip from Johnson where he noted that his victory came on the anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. Today, we did not just acknowledge the assassination of a dreamer. Today, the dream is alive. And so today, we celebrate the revival and the resurrection of the city of Chicago. Alden, let's talk about how Johnson wove civil rights issues into this race. I mean, I think he did it across a number of different uh uh, topics and issues. Um, I mean, he talked a lot about reproductive rights, which is, uh, you know, maybe now in, in a post-war world may seem to be a, a natural talking point for people. But, uh, you know, he talked about a woman's right to choose. He talked about you know, people having the right uh, in the rich, one of the richest cities in the world to be able to afford to live here, that you can't be too poor to live here. He talked about uh, affordable housing and people having a right to safe and affordable housing. Uh, he talked about disability rights. He talked about environmental justice issues. And I think, you know, not short, shortly after uh, his election victory, talked about, you know, creating or bringing back this Department of the Environment. So across a range of things, he talked about people having uh, this sense that they are owed a certain level of rights and, respond, and uh, you know, and respect and that uh, that that was going to be a part of what he wanted to 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 bring to the fifth floor. And part of what he part of what he was bringing also was a discussion of uh, renewed mental health resources in the city, right? And mental health resources not only for uh, for young people in the city, but for people like uh, police officers. I mean, it seems like this uh, the discussion of mental health issues and wanting to wanting to beef up those resources in the city also speaks to a national trend of people. Uh, of people wanting to uh, wanting to come to to feel like they um, that they're able to talk about um, talk about their experiences, talk about their traumas, and work through them, as the, and that the um, that the city um, that elected leaders and that people of positions of responsibility uh, care about that. And this is especially true with a younger generation. I think I don't know how much you saw that uh, in in covering this on you know on the campaign trail. Um, I, I know that. Uh uh, at least uh, a lot of my coverage just comes from looking at, at data, but uh, but but certainly uh, younger voters played a, a, a big role in this election, and not necessarily a, a you know outsized role uh, other parts of the electorate, but uh, they were more involved. Uh, the number of ballots that were submitted by people under the age of 35, 
uh, increased uh, by a, a roughly uh, 6,000 or so. Uh, and at least at the time that we were looking at the data, none of the other age groups, the older age groups, had actually submitted more ballots. Now, the mail-in ballots might change that a little bit, but certainly uh, younger voters were more involved in the runoff election. And the numbers, at least, and I think conventional wisdom suggests that they were more favorable to Brandon Johnson than Paul Ballas. We do have a comment from YouTube. Jordan Novak says, United Working Families made the ground game happen. I was a door knocker for Brandon. Let's talk a little more about Brandon Johnson. None of the black alders who endorsed Vallis had Vallis win their awards. And then black politicians were split. So we saw this old guard, former Secretary of State Jesse White, former Congressman Bobby Rush get behind Vallis. But there was also the young Jamal Green who supported Vallis, too. Alden, do you see any fallout in the black community over the split? Uh, yeah, it was swift and immediate. I want to say the day after uh, the election, uh, there was uh, widely distributed on social media uh, uh, an image. Uh, and I think it said like sellout. Sellout. Yeah. Yep, I and saw it. <laughs> so uh, headshots of uh, a range of folks. Uh, so uh, and, and I don't know how long that will last. One of the things I think is interesting, though, is that the people who were on that list, I mean, if you really break it down, were people who were, you know, pretty much way past their prime or people who hadn't quite risen to a level of being really prominent. So, um, you know, and not to belittle anybody, but I just, uh, you know, I just, to me, it was kind of like these folks were maybe putting their political capital behind somebody who they thought maybe was going to win, uh, and it didn't turn out that way. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I think the sense of from, from, from the black community, to some degree anyway, was, you know, hey, this was the wrong candidate to get behind, and, uh, and this is how we feel about that. There was such a disconnect that it makes me wonder, were you talking to people in your communities or did you just take this gamble and say, I want to go with the winner and there's no way that it's not going to be Paul Vallis? That's what I'm guessing. Um, talking to people, I was at Vallis's election night. Well, it started off as a party. It wasn't so much by the end, kind of a morning thing. But, you know, there was uh, one incumbent alder person I spoke to there, um, not black, but I think he, he said it well, uh, which was that 70 to 75% of the city council, he said, thought this election was going to go another way. There's going to be a lot of phone calls over the next couple of weeks. So I think it's just, uh, yeah, Natalie, I think a lot of people thought Vallis was going to be the winner, that Chicago was going to vote the way, sort of its default direction with uh, the known insider. And uh, a lot of people thought they were going to line up behind the winner and, and, you know, get on on Team Vallis while they could and see what they could get out of it. And it didn't work out for them. And they were you could just see the surprise spread through that room, including among some of the elected officials who were there on Tuesday night. Someone on YouTube says Sophia King passed her prime. J. Maul Green, question mark. Oh, I was saying there were, were, I mean, talking about the older folks, but the younger folks are people that I don't think have really kind of even reached a point where we can really consider them to be very prominent black political voices just yet. And Sophia King gave up her seat, so she's not. And finished way down the list running for mayor. I mean, I know it was tough out there. I don't want to beat up on her, but yeah, I mean, it goes back to this whole thing too. Like, do these endorsements matter? You know, uh, obviously, doesn't look like a lot of these officials we're talking about pulled a huge number of voters with them. Yeah. Um, people voted despite the endorsements from these these old heads. And 
said, uh, no, you're you're missing out on this one. Yeah, I, I would say to the question around endorsements, I think Garcia's endorsement of Johnson helped at least in some parts where he did well. We're looking at the map and he uh, Johnson killed it uh, in Little Village and Pilsen, which is probably uh, in Latino Chicago, the places where Chuy Garcia was kind of most revered. Uh, so I was I think it gave him a boost there. But I'm not sure if an endorsement from Jay Maul Green is necessarily going to, you know, you know, turn the tides for Paul Vallis or anybody else. I mean, Jay Maul, Sophia King, uh, Rod Sawyer, with all due respect, I mean, I don't think any of them got more than two percentage points, two or three percentage points. So uh, literally just kind of a blip on the radar. And Jordan on YouTube says Jay Maul burned a lot of bridges in the last five weeks with his progressive base. Jordan also says Brandon's toughest challenges will be hiring a CPD superintendent that is effective and shares his vision. So a lot of bowls for Brandon Johnson <laughs> to uh, <laughs> figure out when he takes office. Uh, but what is the, the Chicago Teachers Union has wanted to get one of their own on the fifth floor of City Hall for so long. What does it mean now that they do have one? Well, I mean, you have to wonder if. Now that one of their own is on on the fifth floor, if uh, he's going to still uh, see himself as being one of one of them. Right. Like now the realities of governance um, set in. And if you're uh, if you're an activist trying to make change from from the ground up and pushing on City Hall to do things, uh, it's quite a different thing when you're in City Hall trying to run those things and realizing uh, the budgetary concerns, uh, making the trains run on time, uh, you know, how, how to keep different constituencies, um, happy enough with you that you'll get reelected, uh, the next time and won't suffer the same fate that, uh, that Chicago's current mayor, uh, has suffered with one term. Uh, I mean, it remains to be seen, I reckon, uh, whether, whether CTU truly has, has a voice on the fifth floor, right? Yeah, and some of those issues you mentioned, like making the trains run on time, that's literally an issue that he's going to have to deal with right away, right? CTA high on everybody's list. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, even within just the issues, uh, well, first of all, CTU um, has made itself into a union pushing for, a, you know, a, a movement leader pushing for more than just issues affecting teachers and the schools. Uh, talking about a whole range of issues that um, they expect uh, Brandon Johnson will lead the way on, uh, really, you know, investing in the city instead of responding with with just policing and law enforcement, um, reopening mental health clinics, um, you know, expanded affordable housing. You know, what's he going to do with the CHA, um, which nobody seems to be talking about except a couple of us around here. Um, so I, I, I think, yeah, there's a whole list of challenges in how he moves from uh, the movement to governance and, you know, having to make compromises occasionally to get people on board, to get things passed. Those are all the big questions. Let's turn to other races on Tuesday's ballot, the 14 automatic runoffs. Alden, let's start with you. WBEZ's data team made a detailed map of election results. What stood out? With regard to the automatic races, the thing that stood out to me uh, probably the most was the 11th Ward. It's a race that uh, that we had a, a lot of interest in. Um, my former uh, life here at BZ uh, with the, the Race Classic Communities Desk, uh, really covering uh, the political kind of fight to get the ward remapped so that it was a majority Asian ward that had been kind of on the list for um, uh Uh, Asian political activists for a very long time, going back a decade or so. 
And uh, so it finally got it to happen. And here in the very first aldermanic race uh, in this newly constituted ward, you had uh, a runoff. And the February numbers suggested that it was going to be a very close runoff. But uh, that map showed that uh, the majority Asian precincts that did not go to Lee uh, earlier in the race, um, she won some, particularly ones in Chinatown. Um, but uh, other parts of the ward, uh, she captured that vote. Uh, she got vote, uh, strong votes from parts of the ward that were not majority uh, Asian as well. And pretty much the support for her opponent was limited to uh, kind of the Canaryville area uh, precincts on the far south and southeast side of that ward. So it showed that there was uh, still support for the idea that led to the creation of that ward as it exists now. Mick, what were some of the highlights for you? Well, just to add on to what Alden's saying about the 11th Ward, let's also remind ourselves what the 11th, the 11th Ward is, is known yes. for. Yes. This yes. is uh, known as the home of mayors, the home of machine politics with, you know, two um, Mayor Daly's coming out of there. Um, I think the war, is the Ward Committeeman still John Daly? I think it is still John Daly. Um, the and, Democratic and this, Ward this, this new alderman, or newly elected alderman anyway, is part of the Daly That's family right. as well. Her, her dad worked for... Uh, worked for the most recent Mayor Daly. So uh, the historic 11th Ward shifting into something, on the one hand, looking a lot different. On the other hand, politically, I don't know. Let's see. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, the city council is, is absolutely fascinating. Uh, ben mentioned earlier that it also appears to have shifted to the left with um, not just the runoff races, but some of the races decided in the first round with more uh self-identifying progressive candidates winning, um, although at the same time, uh, most incumbents won. No incumbents lost, in uh, so far at least. There's a, there's a couple that are still very close, but incumbents are winning. Uh, no incumbents were knocked off in the runoffs. Um, so you're still going to have a lot of you know, long-serving alder people at the heart of that. Just last week, so it's... A full week ago, it seems like about a year ago, but just last week, uh, the city council moved to uh, essentially declare independence from the mayor by saying it's going to start choosing its own leaders, the leaders of its uh, legislative committees, which in any other legislative body in the country is sort of like, well, yeah, that's how it works. They choose their own leaders, but that isn't how it's worked here in Chicago for many decades. Is that going to stick? Um Every piece of legislation at the end of this term will get flushed. And so even that thing that they passed last week, that measure to basically say we're going to choose our own leaders, they are going to have to vote on that again after the inauguration next month. So what is that going to mean for the alignment in the city council? How is the new mayor going to work with these different factions? Um, going to be a very interesting tale to watch unfold. Oh, go ahead. Uh, as the, with the expansion of committees, right? If, if that sticks, um, in a legislative body, uh, finding and using power is, I mean, that, that's sort of one of the most important things to do as an elected official, right? And under the current city council makeup, there's, um, a lot of underused committees, right? Like underused committee positions. And in this new makeup that, that you're talking about, Mick, there's going to be, uh, more positions, uh, and because there's going to be more committees and those are going to be appointed uh, internally rather than as essentially a de facto appointment from the mayor. So you're 
in theory, with this legislative body, you're making a much, you're, you're giving many more power nodes, right, for, for the city council members to, to affect change and to affect power because they can resuscitate some of the councils that, uh, council, um, committees that really have been moribund or haven't, haven't done a lot. And you've got all these new, these new committees that'll be, that'll be in action. So if you're a council member, it's, uh, it's, Pretty attractive proposition, right? To have the potential to be on uh, a, a committee with smaller numbers, right? So the committees will will, will shrink in size from what about twenty to um, to you know ten, eleven, a dozen. So to be seated on a committee that's smaller, so you have a bigger voice, a committee chair who can do more in theory, and appointed by your peers, uh, it's a pretty attractive proposition for a legislature um, once it makes that power grab to hold on to it. Yeah. Does so. Anyone- was, it, was anyone surprised that Jim Gartner of the 45th Ward won again? <laughs> He's had a list of controversies. Black Club has been great about covering. Yeah, them. that's right. He's had uh, one one kind of small scandal after another. Um, reportedly, is under investigation from uh, various government entities. But listen, uh, certainly at ward level politics, you know, politics is local, as the saying goes. That's certainly true. I think with other manic races. So um, it comes down to, you know, he's a former firefighter, I believe, up in a, you know, part of the northwest side where that has a lot of cachet. And, um, you know, the progressive movement hasn't really uh, made a huge impact on uh, way on the the far northwest side just yet. So, um, you know, little surprise that he wasn't sort of reprimanded because of his issues. Uh, though he was dragged into a runoff, but not not shocked at all that he held on to to win re-election in, in that climate up there. Shamrock Bloom on YouTube says, I am surprised about Gardner. Shameful. But I want us to talk about some national news now, particularly in our neighboring states. Ben, Wisconsin made headlines on Tuesday with the most expensive state Supreme Court race in, in U.S. history. Give us some details about that. So the Wisconsin Supreme Court is, it's a nonpartisan body, right? That's what it says on paper. But, uh, in reality, it's a very partisan, uh, a partisan organization with, um, with justices aligning pretty vocally on, uh, on either the conservative progressive side of, of the political aisle. Now, in recent memory, that Supreme Court has had a, uh, has had a majority on the conservative side. And, uh, with a recent announcement of retirement, that opened up a swing seat, and uh, the 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 race that was just decided on Tuesday in Wisconsin uh, was essentially for the future of the court, whether it's going to go uh, a very progressive a very progressive route or a very uh, conservative route. And Janet Protasiewicz won won that race. She is she, she defines uh, she's closely def- uh, aligned with the Democratic Party. Got a lot of uh, Wisconsin Democratic Party money. And it looks like with the change that happened in the court up there, it could unlock a lot of a lot of court cases that have been stymied in the legislature. So the legislature is a super it's 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 um, Republican and it's not likely to change anytime soon because of gerrymandering of of districts. So it's the legislature is not going to push through any progressive policy anytime soon. And the courts are seen as sort of the way that progressive policy or progressive changes to conservative policy can happen in that state. And now that the court has a 4-3 liberal majority, there's a thought that a lot of the things that have happened in Wisconsin, whether it's um, whether it's union issues, 
There's an 1849 abortion ban on the books, um, things dealing with, uh, with voter registration, voter ID. Uh, all those issues are probably going to come before the court, and they're going to come before a court that, for the first time in a long time, is going to be looking at them through progressive, a progressive lens. And Alden, our Indiana neighbors also made headlines this week. Tell us about the legislation signed by Governor Eric Holcomb. Uh, yeah, this week uh, Governor Holcomb signed uh, a bill essentially banning um, uh, all kind of uh, gender-affirming uh, care uh, in, uh, in Indiana. Uh, so that includes things like uh, hormone therapy, uh, puberty, blocker, pu- puberty blockers, uh, things of that nature. I believe the legislation also banned um, transition uh, surgeries, uh, although uh, it's been reported that uh, the medical community there uh, in Indiana said that uh, they wouldn't do those procedures um, anyway on minors. But, uh, but yeah, the uh, supporters of the bill say that uh, even uh, parents of minors that uh, want to have these things, uh, that these are decisions that should be made by adults, uh, that they are, uh, you know, they lead to lifelong problems and uh, that the, the minors should not be allowed to, to take those steps. And, uh, opponents of the bills uh, speak that uh, uh, these procedures are things that uh, uh, not allowing to do can be very vitally, uh, you know, kind of uh, detrimental to them and their development, uh, and that any problems medically are things that can be reversed. Well, what's being called the Combat 4 trial continued this week. Mick, what did we learn? Well, first of all, you know, before you even get into any of the details of this, I think what's fascinating is that while we just spent, what, 40 minutes talking about what's going on in city politics and the apparent shift to the left and people coming into city hall, starting with the mayor's office, also members of city council, basically saying, we're going to bring a whole new kind of politics to Chicago and the way things are done. While that's happening, there's a trial going on that is highlighting the way politics have been done in this city and this state for a very long time. And uh, for people who haven't been following the details, um, there are four former officials and lobbyists for ComEd, utility giant, who are on trial for allegedly uh, engaging in a bribery scheme where they were sending uh, favors to, the, to Michael Madigan so that he could hire allies and supporters. Um, and, and basically, it's, uh, you know, supposedly a uh, allegedly a, a payoff and patronage operation that was run through this utility giant. And so uh, what we've heard over the last week is more uh, recordings that were caught on wires, uh, evidence introduced from text messages, from voicemails with some of the uh, these former insiders and, you know, allies of Mike Madigan basically um, talking about how they wanted to steer contracts to people that Madigan favored, uh, you know, so they could set them up and they would owe Madigan, you know, favors down the road. It's it's kind of like the godfather in politics. Another local story is the opening of a Save-A-Lot grocery store in Englewood has been postponed following protests outside the store. Let's hear what 16th Ward Alder Stephanie Coleman told the crowd. Save a lot, yellow banana, just paid $12,000 at 4 o'clock p.m. just so they can have a soft opening tomorrow. So without even respect to our community, did not even invite us to this VIP-only tasting, whatever this is, 
just paid that just paid thousands of dollars to open their doors legally to our community and enough is enough so I have to say, I was invited to that opening mm. on Tuesday night. Uh, I'm doing editing right now, so I tried to send a reporter. And then I was going to send someone the next morning because they were supposed to be having this 8 a.m. press conference. And then that night I got a text saying, eh, it's not going to happen. And then on Insta, the protests from, from folks in Inglewood, Alden, why are Inglewood residents angry? Because this is like a, a real, real sore spot for folks in Inglewood. That that store that the Save a Lot is opening in is the former home of the uh, Inglewood uh, uh, Whole Foods store that uh, opened there some years ago to much fanfare. And, I mean, it was like an incredible accomplishment. I mean, Whole Foods, Whole Paycheck coming to Inglewood, you know, one of the lowest income communities in Chicago. Um, but uh, but Inglewood is one of those communities you can't mess with. So uh, when they knew that, that somebody else was coming in, the, the, the community said explicitly, we do not want Save-A-Lot. They were open to Aldi. They were open to Walmart. They were open to Mariano's, but they were not open to Save-A-Lot. Save-A-Lot has burned a lot of bridges in black Chicago. They've had a number of stores. Those stores closed, uh, and those stores had built a reputation of being poorly managed, poorly kept, uh, dirty, nasty, you name it. And so the notion that, hey, we had this pinnacle, or at least was considered the pinnacle of a grocer in this neighborhood, we lost it. We're very upset about that. And now we go to Save-A-Lot, unacceptable. And so to Save-A-Lot, then, you know, Yellow Banana, save in their deal with Save-A-Lot, you know, essentially it's like this is who we could get, although there's some question about if, if that that's if that was actually the truth. Uh, but then for there to this kind of be this uh you know, kind of shadow of night kind of thing, uh, just just was kind of the icing on the cake. And and Inglewood, Inglewood responded the way Inglewood normally responds when they think people are doing them wrong. Well, that sign for Save-A-Lot came up months ago. And so the community has been very vocal about we don't want Save-A-Lot. Yeah. And Yellow Banana is an Ohio-based operator, but no one has really – I'm just really baffled why – People just don't say, hey, let's have a meeting where if, if you're going to do things differently, then save a lot, then explain that. Otherwise, people are just going to go with their impression of what they know save a lot to be. Yeah. And the Yellow Banana should be very clear and conscious about the the impressions that people have here about save a lot. They are actually uh, essentially kind of reinvigorating, I think, maybe five or six different save a lot stores across the city. There was the uh, old Save-A-Lot in Auburn Gresham that closed down. Yellow Banana has acquired that store. And they had a conversation with people in the neighborhood, and the folks said, hey, look, we're glad that you're, you're bringing the store back, but can we name it something other than Save-A-Lot? Save-A-Lot just has a very bad reputation here, and all the things that you want to accomplish are going to be harder to accomplish because once people see that Save-A-Lot on the, on, the, uh, on, the, on the storefront, they're going to go, no, 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 never mind. I'll, go, I'll, I'll travel three more miles like I've been doing to, to get my groceries. We have Shamrock Bloom, who says from YouTube, the Save-A-Lot deal was done in the dark of the night, like many other things that have happened in the city lately. Um, another story percolating this week that's going into next week is public university faculty strike. So we have Chicago State that is on strike. Uh, Alden, give us an update on that. Yeah, so Chicago State uh, went on strike. Uh, their faculty and staff, their unionized faculty and staff, went on strike on Monday. Um, and then uh, there's uh, another university, Eastern Illinois University. Their folks went on strike this week, or yeah, went on strike yesterday. 
And today was the first day that uh, faculty and staff at Governor's State University is uh, uh, eligible to go on strike. I don't believe they have. But um, but there's They're looking at Tuesday. Yeah, there, there's a sense that that's going to happen, too. Uh, Lisa Phillip have to give her much props story published today on WBEZ.org did a great job really kind of detailing some of the underlying issues that are happening at all three of those schools uh, and that have been happening generally with funding, public funding of uh, uh, the state's uh, four-year institutions uh, over the past 20 years or so uh, that kind of was exacerbated with the pandemic. But, uh, you know, all of these struggles that faculty and staff are having around compensation and other things like that, I, I think uh, Governor State there, uh, you know, there's a there's a, a crunch in terms of uh, counselors. There's, you know, they got like 500 students on their caseload, which is incredible. Um, but the resources uh, are largely coming uh, from uh, tuition and fees nowadays. And that's fine if you're the University of Illinois or you're the University of Illinois at Chicago. But that's not fine if you're governor state. It's not fine if you're Chicago state uh, in particular and Eastern as well. A largely uh, uh, people of color uh, and uh from families that are not first generation college Pell Grant exactly so it's kind of like you know there's only so much you can get out of those folks in terms of increased tuition and fees and uh, and these are the these are the institutions that are feeling it the most and and uh, enrollment is down heavily especially at uh, Chicago State things down like 50 percent in the last few years so uh, so not only do you have families that can't you know meet rising tuition and fees but uh, but then you've got fewer of them there. Uh, and so those institutions are really feeling the crunch and the faculty and staff there are, are the ones that are paying the price to some degree. Well, it's, it's so important that, like you said, these problems uh, or issues uh, at these at these institutions, they don't come up overnight. Right. It takes years. And uh, it's a real uh, it's a real lesson that is can be seen across the country that any decision made uh, in higher education will have ripple effects, right? And those ripple effects can then have other, can cause other things that have ripple effects. And, uh, pretty soon, so if we, hey, let's, let's rely more on, let's rely more on tuition, not, not so much on state funding. Well, then what happens when, uh, folks stop coming? There's a pandemic or whatever. And you, and then everything just sort of spins to the spot we're at, we're at now. Uh, and I think it's, it's a true lesson for higher education across the country. Uh, and people who are in pol- positions of policymaking to look at that and say, okay, how can we, how can we make decisions now that we're going to know what's going to happen five, 10, 15 years down the road and plan for, uh, plan for these contingencies? Because it's not about just cutting funds now or balancing a budget right now. It's about looking toward the future. And that's so true with things like, I mean, not just higher ed, but public transportation, public housing, uh, all those, all those public goods. And Lisa Phillips' story is great on WBEZ.org, and her reporting shows that state funding for Illinois public universities was cut nearly in half between 2000 and 2022. Uh, Turning to a tragedy this week, the fire department lost two firefighters in the line of duty this week. And our thoughts are with the families of firefighters John Torek and Jermaine Pelt. Mick, this is certainly a reminder for us about the fire safety issues and the dangers of this job. Yeah. I mean, these happened, uh, these incidents were two different places in the city, West Pullman, Gold Coast. And uh, like you said, uh, two firefighters ended up dead as a result of these incidents. And, you know, we spent much of the hour talking about uh, the elections this week and uh, Mayor Lightfoot 
said, you know, after these incidents, uh, listen, this is a reminder that our first responders are out there putting their lives on the line all the time and and basically, you know, sending that message to uh, Mayor-elect Johnson, like uh, while we're having these policy debates about policing and our budgets, like let's not forget these people who actually uh, go out there when we have emergencies. Ben, I wonder if you can give us an update on a colleague of yours who is jailed. He was detained last week in Russia, the first American journalist arrested by Moscow on allegations of spying since the Cold War. That's right. Uh, Evan Gershkovich, he's uh, been with the journal since 2022, and uh, uh, his parents grew up in the uh, in the former Soviet Union. And uh, since he was a boy, he uh, he had he loved he loved Russia and uh, he loved reporting on on Russia and he provided he provides such a important thing for not only Western news organizations but news organizations in Russia which is talking to the people and giving an objective perspective on what's happening and Evan is a fantastic reporter right now he is jailed in uh, uh, in in Moscow. We've um, the the Wall Street Journal has uh, has had um, has had lawyers go speak with him uh, and and check in on him. But right now, there's there's he, he hasn't really been able to have uh, have a lot of messages messages go in and out or speak to his family. Um, the journal is doing all it can to to try to make sure that that Evan uh, is uh, is 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 freed. Because he was doing nothing other than doing his job as a journalist and such an important job. And to have Russia stifle that voice by arresting him, uh, it impacts not only not only Evan, uh, but it impacts uh, reporters across the world. And uh, and this can't be this can't be a precedent that stands. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you to today's recap panel for joining us to break down the top stories of the week. The Wall Street Journal's Ben Kessling, McDumkey of Block Club Chicago, and WBEZ's Alden Laurie. Have a good weekend, everyone. That episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Andrea Guffman. It was edited by Claire Hyman and Stephanie Kim. If you like what you're hearing, give us a like and rating. And be sure to hit subscribe for more important conversations about Chicago and Illinois news. That's it for the Reset Pod today. I'm Natalie Moore and for Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.